This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of the Great Ormond Street Pediatric Bioethics Podcast. I'm Joe Briley. I'm the director of the Pediatric Bioethics Centre at Great Ormond Street. I'm very excited. My guest today is Andrew Papanikitis, who is a general practitioner with a very big interest and portfolio in ethics. And I, I think it's something we've been really keen to broaden our podcast into kind of a lot more of the general practice area and the things that are encountered there that have an ethical component. So, Andrew, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm quite excited to be virtually here. <laughs> Great. So the first question, I think, and the, the best start is to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your professional life, and then, of course, about your interest in ethics. Okay. Well, I got into medical ethics as a, as a medical student. The guys at St. Thomas's Hospital Medical School, or UMDS, had a, one of the last vestiges of the London medical group. And there were little pots of money scattered around and we resurrected a medical ethics group, which then got taken on by the Royal Society of Medicine and, and sort of joined up with other medical ethics groups in all the other London medical schools. So for a while we had a, a mild resurrection of the London medical group and it sort of stayed with me. So I did a, a master's degree in medical law and ethics while I was still at medical school. And then when I'd finished qualifying as a GP, I did a PhD in ethics education and found myself directing a medical philosophy course at the Worshipful Society of Apothecaries, one of the old city livery companies. And since then, I've been on the uh, RCGP ethics committee and found myself chairing it. Though I have to say, I'm speaking as myself today uh, rather on behalf of any royal colleges or, or other institutions and maybe as a co-editor with John Spicer of the handbook of primary care ethics which I'm very pleased to say is, is actually on the RCGP curriculum as a, as, as a recommended read for ethics for practice. I also help out with the, the Oxford University Hospital's clinical ethics advisory group, the clinical ethics committee says so it's, it's nice to actually see what's happening in hospital and also think about how that's going to overlap in primary care and, and how that's going to end up in primary care as well. So a lot of the issues that have sort of been big news, such as ABC versus St. George's, have a, a tendril in primary care or a decision that should possibly be discussed with or shared with clinicians, not just general practice, rather than ignoring what's happening outside the hospital or even unthinkingly deferring to the people outside the hospital. So, so as a traditional ethicist, you've jumped straight into the second part of the question about ethics. What about the rest of your life, professional life? What do you do? So I'm a one day a week-ish GP and the, the other four days of the week, I do a mixture of postgraduate education with the University of Hull York Medical School and also undergraduate education with the University of Oxford. And I also am deputy editor currently of the British Journal General Practice. So I, I look after the, the section of the journal, which is sort of opinion debate that's called the life and time section. And we have a, a blog, which is the BJGP life blog, which I, we welcome contributions from our hospital colleagues that you Very think might be interesting for, for us in primary care to, to hear about. So within a few minutes, you're selling a book and you're uh, advertising your blog. This is very good. I'm impressed. Yeah, that that's definitely falls into the image of the GP as the sort of the small shopkeeper of the yeah. NHS. You're a very busy man. I can certainly echo that. I guess one thing we, we often have a theme, and I think one of the 
best things about our ethics group at Great Ormistry is we insist one of our mandatory things is to have a GP. It's such an important thing for those of us working in a centre such as uh, Great Ormistry at Tertiary Children's Centre to have someone who actually looks after children in the context of general practice and they bring an awful, an awful lot of common sense and Mary won't mind me saying that the person who's our current GP who's wonderful but I guess one question that I, I'm very interested about some of the changes we talk about in child health and the complexity that's increasing the number of children living at home with maybe complex uh, epilepsy ongoing neurodisability and of course life-sustaining therapies in the community are, are increasing rapidly year on year so children living on ventilators renal replacement therapy and parental nutrition and what What's that like as a general practitioner? Do you feel that the demands of those sorts of patients are something that can be readily met? And I guess as the, the second part of that leading question, how good do you feel tertiary and secondary paediatric services are interfacing with general practice? I think it's variable. Firstly, in terms of those kinds of things that you've described, I think they're still in the totality of primary care and even in the totality of primary care paediatrics, I think it's a very, very small section. So I think that I would say the vast, vast majority of ped in general practice never gets near a paediatrician. So though that increase in that group you've just described represents a potential, even though it's a very small minority in terms of the statistics, it represents a huge chunk of work that's coming, has come in many cases, but is coming in the direction of primary care. So there is this idea that primary care is cheaper because it's cheaper to have stuff in people's own homes rather than in a hospital. But I, I think there is a worry that that sort of literal outsourcing to the community comes with a degree of abandonment. And certainly there are a large number of GPs who, who've done diplomas in child health. I've done a diploma in child health or done an extra sort of experience in pediatrics, but I, I think some of this stuff will require support, even a kind of intellectual handholding. So it may well be that, that, you know, a lot of sort of general practice is, you know, you can't hold the entire of medical knowledge in your head at any one time. I know you're a, I'm, I'm a have I got this right? Because I've, I've seen your, your slides referencing Dr. Who at various conferences that you're you're a bit of a, a sci-fi buff. There's a wonderful series of books called Hospital Ship, Hospital Station, Ambulance Ship by Northern Irish author writing during the Troubles, uh, which is set in a future where doctors literally upload the textbook and medical knowledge of every new species they see, and then they have to sort of purge it every so often. And I don't think we've got there yet. So I think until we get there, we do really need different kinds of support. Some of that support is education. So some of that support might be training for GPs who are doing these new things. Some of that support might be conversations and correspondence. So better ways to access specialist knowledge, specialist decision-making support. Some of that might just be that actually the person who's having to do the majority of the journalist work doesn't have the manual surgical skills. So. Some of the stuff that's done, for example, by community specialist nurses, that's not uh, done by GPs. So there's all sorts of different permutations. And I think the, the worry is that an entire section of work sort of gets hived off. And 
rather than everyone becoming more skilled and there being an overlap and there being an, a correspondence. So the sort of the knee-jerk political reaction is what, you know, GPs are going to stop seeing kids, you know, and I, I don't know whether that happens to a certain degree in other countries. I suspect you're probably more familiar with primary care peds in, in other countries than I am. Maybe you can teach me. I doubt I'll be able to teach you, but I have some experience of different systems. I, I do like your anecdote, and I, it takes me back. There was a wonderful paediatrician at the Whittington who, who's retired called Ed Broadhurst, and he used to actually get his phone out occasionally when you'd be talking about something and start looking it up and say, I'm getting out my peripheral brain, which I think works very well, because the, the totality of medical knowledge, it's just exponentially increased. And I, I'm, I'm older than you, so I remember going to see Index Medicus and trying to find a paper published, which would take me an hour to find that paper versus, you know, the internet now, I find 100 papers in five minutes. It's so different. But yeah, I think that leads me on to one of the questions I wanted to ask about different systems. And I know the NHS and funding and fragmentation are, are recurrent topics for all of us at the moment. There's a question about funding and what goes on. But the question really is about child health and whether a different model is necessary. Is it mm. our current model would work perfectly well if it were funded as, as other countries fund their healthcare systems? A lot of my European colleagues advocate and, and strongly support and, and practice a model where there's a primary care paediatrician. So someone who's a, a paediatrician who spends their time working with children in a general practice environment versus having that GP with an expert interest here, whatever that is in. And then the options about having, I don't know, community centres, the DARSI approach seemed very sensible at the time with imaging and people who traditionally are in hospitals coming to the streets where most people live. That just seemed to me very sensible. And I, I still think it's crazy people come into hospitals for things like x-rays. In Australia, when I was living there, you used to go to Boots and get your x-ray, you know, and CT scanning suites in, in the community, which seems sensible. And of course, at the other end, there's the most expensive healthcare system known to man currently in the United States, where most children will have a paediatrician with surveillance checks, which the data and you know, our practice would show are superfluous, but are very reassuring for many families to have their mm -hmm. child checked on by a paediatrician annually. And then if there are problems, have a very high intensity investigation way of working through things, often a very private model and, and requires an awful lot more funding than we currently have. And I guess that's one of the questions about different healthcare models, which are, are slightly outside the scope of what we do, but I, they are a big ethical issue about how children should be cared for by whatever general practice model there is and how that best is with hospitals. Well, I think that's, that's one big, big ethical issue and that's the paramountcy idea. So, you know, that idea that the child coming first is something I think that's common. It's common to any discipline that interacts with children. It's sort of any kind of institutional feature of society that comes into contact with children. So. There is this idea of a child's best interests trumps parental confidentiality. It trumps inconvenience. It trumps you know, all sorts of different things. So this is, an, in a sense, that sinking feeling where you realize as a clinician or anyone realizes as a clinician that they are going to do potentially say something or do something that is, is not going to endear them with with a parent or guardian or with colleagues they're going to have to do something that is ethically the right thing to do and you know there's that how do you recognize when something's ethical 
you know, a colleague of mine described it as a sinking feeling in the pit of the stomach. That's how you know when there's, there's an ethical issue about to arise. And again, it's sort of, I'm thinking, you know, broadly without sort of doing anything that might identify any particular personal place. Yeah, the kinds of scenarios where you kind of think to yourself, you know, someone's brought a sick child at the end of your GP surgery, you've examined them and, and you realize that actually they need hospital input because they're too sick to be sent away with oral antibiotics. But even if they were well enough to be sent, you don't trust the parents to give the oral antibiotics. And, and again, this is, there's all sorts of prejudice there potentially, you know, in terms of who do you trust and who do you not trust? But actually then even regardless of this kinds of issues, you know, what do you then do or the child that, that turns up to see you as a, as a clinician unaccompanied and you think you're not really old enough to be turning up to see me unaccompanied and oh my goodness, you're also intoxicated and oh my goodness, the thing you're coming to see me with is an injury caused by another person, you know, so what do I do next there? And I think there's a real dangerous temptation to do the thing that will be the least effort that will upset the fewest people. And again, I think this is the idea of that actually, you, you know, that there's an ethical issue when you realize that doing the right thing will cost you something, it, you know, at the very least it'll cost you time. And at the most, there'll be all sorts uh, of sort of interesting things that might fall out of a clinical encounter. Great. I mean, you're almost heading way into my next question, which was going to be what ethical issues do you as a general practitioner and all your colleagues encounter frequently? And I, I guess you, you've talked about a couple of them there, which are really pertinent, I think. And I, you know, as, as someone who sits in the ivory tower of a children's ICU, I never have to face anything that difficult. I face different things that are, are difficult in different ways. But I remember well the intoxicated teenager at 10 o'clock on a Friday coming on the road and they're 13 and this has happened and that's happened and they come in and they want to go and it's like well that's not okay but of course there are no beds on the ward and trying to get social services at that time can be a challenge and it, it's it's a very different world than we face but the ethical issues there are, are very very I think challenging I think some of them are very mm. complex are there any others you, you like to highlight that you face well I mean it so t typically there's the increasing capacity and the increasing sort of competence. And again, one of the things where, when I'm sort of teaching medical students, there's that whole confusion around, you know, what's, what's Fraser competence and what's Gillick competence. So we sort of get into the legalities of these things and teasing out the idea that, 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 you know, how the law relates to ethics and how so Gillick competence is a general principle that, that if a child meets the same capacity criteria as, as you would expect for an adult. You treat them like an adult in terms of their ability to make decisions. But as opposed to a particular framework in the context of sexual health and safeguarding against sexual abuse, which is the Fraser guidelines in terms of the Sexual Offences Act. And so we've got the issues generated by legal duties and one of the latest of which that has, has caused I think rightly some consternation is the extension of safeguarding into children displaying, you know, radicalization and extreme political views. Do you see, for example, prevent as an extension of child safeguarding? I mean, that's one extreme sort of end. So there we've got the capacity issues. I mean, you'd expect that because children are developing 
their ability to be fully autonomous and lots of those things compromising autonomy, not just the ability to think and reason, but you know, are they financially dependent on someone else? Are they physically smaller and more vulnerable than someone else that has care for them? And what we were talking about earlier about, you know, changes. I mean, the big change for me, and there's a wonderful analogy that's used by an ethicist called Jonathan Ives to change the family structures. And he, he did his PhD on fatherhood and different kinds of fatherhood. And he used Harry Potter as the way of illustrating different types of fatherhood. So Harry Potter is an orphan and he's placed with his uncle Vernon and his uncle Vernon is a, he's a sweet, he describes him as a material father. He, he does the bare minimum required by the law to enable Harry Potter to literally survive. But then he's got a biological father who's deceased and he's got, I can't remember the term that John I've used, sort of spiritual or social fathers. You know, he's got a various, various people who take an interest in Harry's flourishing. And so we, we also see that to a certain degree with changes to family structure, not just in terms of different ethnicities, but also over time in terms of you know, second, third families in terms of the different degrees to which some children have got a nuclear family. Some children are looked after by grandparents. Some children are almost looked after by a, a sort of a community, depending on, you know, where things work in terms of their parents. So some of that complexity doesn't have to be necessarily about rare disease. It can be sort of generated by sort of the social environment where we find our child patients. But then again, there's also the, the sort of the rare and complex stuff that, that, that shows up as well. And again, there may be hotspots sort of geographically as well, because especially in terms of areas around you know, tertiary centers or particular areas where you get particular social and ethnic groups, particularly in terms of inherited disease. I guess a couple of things you've touched on that are not surprising and some that I, I guess are, are surprising in terms of what someone who doesn't work in, in that environment would anticipate being problems. Um, but I, I guess the other that, that's almost tr across the entire child health and indeed healthcare environment is that the stuff we've had a previous podcast with Michael Marmont thinking about the social determinants of health. That's such a big thing for all of us, really. Probably some very difficult situations there. Parents who don't have resource, they have little income, children who are struggling to be fed. We can see it very clearly in our not daily papers, really. But the interface of that with children's health must be something you encounter quite frequently. Yeah, and, and how much of that then becomes your job as a clinician? Yeah. So, you know, when you have politicians talking about GPs prescribing food, I mean, that's the kind of thing that, that makes us all develop more white hairs because yes. you're thinking, well, why, why can't more food just be available? Why does it have to be prescribed on a need basis by general practitioners who are already maxed out dealing with stuff that is actually not as a result of socioeconomic deprivation? Okay. We'll probably need to move on because I think we can about this all day. But I guess two, two final comments or questions. The perception that many people will have and, and is put about is of general practitioners as small businessmen and women and other genders are available. Yeah, small business people. Okay. Yeah, the Business people is the right term to use. So people who are very, um, as well as clinical experts, 
are, are very good at managing budgets more than the rest of us are in medicine, for instance. What kind of things are you dealing with in terms of children? I mean, again, from the outside, we look at highly expensive therapies and sometimes that's being pushed into general practice, maybe being pushed back. Everyone's budgets are being squeezed, but there are people who need quite expensive treatments. And how is that managed? So firstly, as a clinician, the thing that we're all budgeting is time. So even before you get to sort of big budgets, you know, how much time am I going to give this person with larger needs? And there is the temptation to think, what's, what's a proportionate need and what's a disproportionate need? And, and this is where we get from the sort of the utility monsters of the bioethics classroom, you know, the creature whose need would eclipse the world. And you sort of see a little bit of that in terms of people with very sort of complex and distressing conditions and having to set that against, you know, a GP, one GP to put it in context is responsible in a sense for, you know, 2000 or more people. If a practice has a certain number of full-time equivalent doctors, that, that practice will likely have multiples of thousands of patients that are registered with these doctors. And uh, so there is that sense of agency that comes with that responsibility. So on the one hand, you're not constrained to the patient that is directly in front of you. You have to think about them, but you also have to think about others. There are different levels of, I think bureaucracy is a loaded term. So if someone was having exceptional needs, there is something called a low priorities panel. And, and that would be a panel that would be deciding on assigning a sum of money to treat something that was exceptional. Problem arises, I think, between things that aren't clearly catered for in general practice budgets and things that aren't exceptional. So the group of patients who all have an exceptional need cease to be exceptional because there's lots of them, but there's not enough of them to, so we're, we're into sort of major distribution dilemmas. And there are some, quite a lot of general practitioners who are serving on these panels and what they're doing is they're thinking strategically, but they're also bringing their sort of grounded experience and their direct experience of having their heart wrenched by having seen people in there sort of every day. So it's, well, all I can say is it's really hard. I've seen a couple of clinical commissioning groups deliberate, but I, I have to confess I, I've never been in the invidious position of helping a low priorities panel make them see. The other, of course, side to this is as the GP, you know, if you're acting as an advocate for a patient, you then have that decision, that dilemma of, you know, do you think you're going to succeed in securing extra resources for someone who needs them? So do you go all in trying to be that person's advocate? Or is there ever a point where you recognize there's a sort of futility and actually counsel someone that actually there's very little point in supporting them through meetings and documentation and emails and second opinions? Or is there any time where that itself could be harmed? Maybe to clarify, your time is precious. It's clinical time. And I was deliberately pushing for high expense, but the expense of running a general practice when you have so many patients on your list and someone will take a large amount of time and that person will need that time. And that might be to help with appealing for something or having specialist treatments. 
I, I think that must be incredibly hard. And I, yeah, or, or argue that all clinicians are busy, but I, I think that to me would be incredibly challenging. How you would support someone when you have such a lot of other pressures on you with the system the way it currently works. You've just touched on something though, and that is that both community and, and hospital doctors with an interest in bioethics may have come across the writings of Edmund Pellegrino, the virtues of the physician. And one of the things that Pellegrino did pick up on was this idea of what do you do and how do you ethically give time and compassion to someone who either has no options in terms of further care or who has options that doesn't want to take them because either the financial cost or the physical cost of an operation or a treatment is too great at a given time. So this, it's a, in a sense, one of the sort of recurring issues in general practice, I think, is how do you look after people who have a clinical need but can't get any further? So what points can you push on, on a service that you know is already overstretched and is already maxed and where you know that is being, is being petitioned by lots of other people like you who are acting on behalf of patients and how do you look after people who can't get further well knowing you don't have the physical means to make someone's life better sorry that's a bit pessimistic and nihilistic i was going to ask you when you encounter ethical issues such as you've just been discussing in general practice how do you get support to, to think through them, to deal with them, and you know the burdens of that on you and your colleagues, and, and how does that work? I can answer that right now. So you're asking the wrong person, okay, because in a sense of ethics, well, I'm a freak or a weirdo, because obviously I've been teaching medical ethics to contemporaries and seniors and juniors for nigh on a decade. So I have a network of people I can talk to. I worry a little bit about most general practitioners because most general practitioners, I wonder, and I, and I kind of, I, I think research needs to be done here because I think general practitioners will talk to a colleague in the practice and they might choose that colleague based on someone who is knowledgeable or someone who is friendly. I ask some of these questions part of my, my, my PhD. You know, people talk to their, their defense organization if they, if they feel a sense of legal threats from a situation, they might open a book, but they're unlikely to open a very sort of complicated book. They're more likely to open a sort of a general practice textbook and, and see if something is in the ethics chapter, as it were. I'd like to think that they might ask a consultant colleague if they thought that that consultant colleague might be seeing more of these types of issues. And certainly one of the things I've seen is lots of clinical ethics committees and clinical ethics advisory groups opening their doors within reason because it's a floodgate to sort of queries from general practice. So even before the pandemic, I remember, I think it was Dan Sokol sort of talking about a question about who would be the swine flu doctor coming from general practice. How do you decide who's going to be the person that takes on this risk within the practice? They do lots in the end. So there is this element you can look stuff up. There are people who identify themselves around who you can talk to, or you can sort of go up the hierarchy in terms of responsibility or knowledge. But again, the question is, what is it you're asking? So 
you know, if I'm doing a referral, do I want someone to give me advice on how to manage something myself? Or do I want them to take that problem off my hands? And it's the same with ethics. You know, do I want someone to help me think through a problem? Or do I want someone to tell me what to do? Or do I want someone to say, oh, no, no, you shouldn't be dealing with this. You know, send it my way. And I think that depends on the case. I think all of the above. Yeah. I guess the ease of finding someone who you can talk to and chat through things will vary as well. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes we're guilty of talking about general practice like it's a single thing that is the same everywhere. But of course it's not. Different lists, different populations. Yes. And also different ways of delivery as well. So, yeah. uh, so you know, GP in the emergency department, GP out of hours, GP on the visit, visiting service, GP doing remote consultations from oh, app-based. Well, that, that's a point yeah. in itself, Andrew, yeah. isn't Probably keep going with so much extra stuff. I think we're, we're over time. So, Andrew, thank you so much um, for that. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, everybody. And uh, I hope you look forward to my next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the GOSH Bioethics Podcast. We would love to get your feedback on the episode, as well as suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear about. You can find a link to the feedback survey in the description for the episode. If you want to hear more about the work of the GOSH Learning Academy, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn, or you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.